Peace be with you, church. Uh, I invite you to open up your Bibles to Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, in order, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for the destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and commanded her to go to the king's to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on the behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except to the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king for 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jew, for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Zusa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I, my, and, and I, sorry, I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would have your way with us this evening, Lord. Speak to us, teach us. Lord, we are so thankful that we can worship you and hear from you this evening, Lord. 
So we pray that your spirit would move and that you would receive all glory, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Last week, we saw how Mordecai's personal gripe, his personal beef with Haman, became a national disaster for the Jews. Uh, Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman. Haman was the newly appointed official, and it was the king's decree that all the servants of the king would bow down to him. Haman refused to do that. And right or wrong, on Mordecai's part, many would argue that he should have just bowed down, Haman was angry. He was furious, and it was not enough for Haman to just go after Mordecai and kill Mordecai. But because Mordecai was a Jew, Haman knew that there is an entire nation, an entire people group out there who will refuse to bow down to him. And so that infuriated Haman, and he was out to get the Jews. And so he argued to the king that there is a group of people out there in your empire. They live by a different set of rules, a different law. They serve another god. They have a different set of laws. Their allegiance is ultimately to their god and not to you. And it is not good. It's not profitable for you to have these people in your empire. And so, genocide was announced. The date was set against the people of God. And here is the proclamation. We find this in Esther chapter 3, verse 13. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Pretty devastating. Um, And so in chapter 4, we see the reaction, we see the response of God's people to this tragic announcement. And so the first thing we see is Mordecai. He tears his clothing He puts on sackcloths, he sprinkles ashes on himself, and we read he was crying bitterly and with a loud voice. And he was doing that not in his house, not in his room somewhere private, but he was doing this in the middle of the city's court, in the middle of a busy street by the king's gate. And not only Mordecai, but verse 3 we read, And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. And so we see this kind of reaction often in scripture. um, When someone is faced with a tragic event, when there's something horrible happening, um, we see people of God put on sackcloth and ashes. Um, this was the ultimate way of announcing humility. 
It was announcing defeat. It was announcing, God, we have nothing else to look to or to depend on except you. Um, Sackcloths, they were made out of very rough material. Um, Imagine if you made a piece of clothes out of a burlap bag that we use for coffee here in Hawaii, a very rough burlap bag, and you'd put it on. It would be very itchy, uncomfortable, but it was a way to express humility. All comforts were put to the side. It was a way to grab attention, to tell the world, I am in distress, to tell God, I have nothing else to count on but you. In the West, we usually hide our grief. We keep our distress to ourselves. Uh, we don't do these kind of things. Um, but this is what people did back then. Um, and it wasn't just for people who were uh, Jews. This wasn't just for the God's people. The Persians did that as well. There was a big uh, battle that was lost by the Persians against the Greeks. And the entire Zusa, city of Zusa did the same exact thing. We find that in history books. And so this action was the ultimate cry for God's help. We can see this kind of reaction also in the city of Nineveh when Jonah went to proclaim that God, his destruction is coming upon the city for their evil. And we read in Jonah 3 verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published Throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And God did relent. God did save them. And so we see this exact reaction from the people of God in our story. Ashes, sackcloth, with fasting, weeping, and lamenting. You can imagine. And this phrase, fasting, Weeping, mourning. Um, the author of Esther he uses this to describe what the people were doing, um, but it is also a direct quote from the prophet Joel. In Joel two twelve, we read, "Yet even now, and prophet the prophet Joel, the, 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 these people, the Jews at this time, they knew these words, they knew this prophecy, and so here's what it says in Joel two twelve. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows? 
whether he will not turn and relent. And so with the threat of this genocide, in a matter of months, this is exactly what the people of God are doing. This is all that they have left to do, to cry out to God, to confess, to lament over their sin, and to cast themselves on the great mercy, grace, and steadfast love of God. And so, as this is all happening, as the people of God deal with, the, with these devastating news, in the meantime, what is Queen Esther doing? Apparently, while all this is happening, Esther is so far into her queen bubble, she has no clue what is going on. She has no clue. She has no clue that Mordecai was having issues with Haman. She has no clue that the genocide is announced. She has no clue that her people are in distress. And so her servants come and tell her, your uncle's in the middle of the town. He's acting kind of crazy. He tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth. He's in ashes. He's in distress. And so Esther we read, is also in great distress. But she's not, she's, she's in distress for other reasons than uh, her uncle is, or whoever he was to her, I already forgot. Cousin, uncle, different opinions. <laughs> she is distressed because he is acting this way. Notice the letter was sent to every part of the kingdom. Every Jew in the empire from South Asia to Eastern Europe to, uh, to, to, to Middle East and Africa, all of them know what is going on. And here is Esther living in the city, living in the palace where this decree was planned and written, and she knows Nothing. Like a chameleon, she did a great job of concealing herself. She concealed her identity, her faith. No one knew who she was. So no one even cared to tell her the news about some Jews getting destroyed. Why bother the queen? And we see she's confused at what her uncle is doing. Mordecai, he was a respected man. He was a king's servant. We read that he sat at the king's gate. Um, only those who were wise and respected would sit at the king's gate. Um, they were often judges of people. If anybody had issues, they would come and talk to someone like Mordecai and receive advice. He's not supposed to act this way. And so... She sends clothes to him. You're, royal, you're, you're a relative of royalty. You're supposed to act respectful, put on some clothes. He sends the clothes back. And then she figures, maybe I should ask him what the distress is. Maybe I should ask him what actually happened. 
And so she sends messengers to ask Mordecai, what is going on? Why are you in distress? And Mordecai sends her a message of what happened to him and Haman. The large bribe that Haman promised to the king. And he also sends a copy of the king's decree for the destruction of the Jews. And in verse 8 we read that he also commands her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on the behalf of her people. Up until this point, if you remember, Mordecai actually instructed Esther not to reveal her identity. He encouraged her to assimilate, to blend in in the empire, to play the part. And Esther has been doing this successfully now for about about five to seven years. And at this point, Mordecai is done with assimilation. And here he is calling Esther to do the same. And so here is the breaking point. This is where the identity crisis for Esther begins. Who is she? Is she Hadessa, the Jew, a child of God? Or is she Esther, the Persian queen? At the deepest core of who she is, does she belong to and with the people of God? Or is she so assimilated into the empire of Persia? Is she so into the lavish life of royalty that that is her new identity? Is she Esther or Hadessa? Here's how Esther's situation might look like today. In a very small way, all examples fall apart at some point. But imagine someone, a kid who grew up in a Christian home, raised in a church, grows up, goes to college, abandons his faith, his church, and he goes to work, begins to work, climbs up the ladder of politics or some business, some company. None of his colleagues know that he was ever a Christian, that he grew up in the church. And let's say this business or this political branch was not friendly towards Christians. They were actually opposed and they fought against Christians. And this guy, a former Christian, became, became, a, became successful in this environment. Many years later, one day people who he knew from before in the church or some Christians come to him and ask him, to call for a board meeting and stand up and fight for the values and rights of Christians. Maybe this company or political branch, maybe they're, they're going after Christians or something. And this guy would have to face a serious decision. Who am I? Is my allegiance to God and to his people who I was a part of? Or is my allegiance to this workplace, to this empire, to the comforts 
that I have achieved. And so standing up in the board, calling the board meeting and standing up in the board meeting and calling this company to back off would be radical. This is exactly what Esther is facing, but on a bigger scale. Who is Esther? Is she with God's people or with the comforts of this world? It's a moment when she cannot have it both ways. She can't have both the world and her faith. And Mordecai is calling that out. He's calling her to make a choice. And notice, she's not giving a chance to ease in, get people used to the idea that she's a Jew. No, it's a call to drastic action. Go now to the king and beg, plead on the behalf of your people. And we see that Esther is struggling with this. Her response is, don't you know the law? Everybody knows the law. And the law says if you go to the king without his invitation, you will die. I will die unless he holds out the gold scepter. In other words, if I go, I'm dead, Mordecai. We know the end of the story. We know that Esther doesn't die. But imagine you're in her place. Remember how capricious and fickle the empire is. Remember how Vashti was removed for simply refusing to come when the king asked her to come. The same thing happened to her. How much more even? There's actually a law. And the punishment is death. She also says, tells Mordecai, I haven't seen the king for 30 days. And I don't know when I will see him again. This is not a good sign. She didn't see him because he's gone. She doesn't see him because the king's love for her has cooled off. He has hundreds of other women to be entertained with. She lost the shine she once had. In other words, Esther's reply is, Mordecai probably can't help you because they're going to kill me. Esther is struggling to do what Mordecai has asked her to do. And so we have Mordecai's response. The famous speech, pep talk. It's like a coach giving his final speech to his team as they are down nine points with a minute and a half to go in game seven of the NBA Finals. It's a break-it-or-make-it moment. Everything is on the line. There's a lot to win, a lot to lose. But Mordecai's speech is more than a pep talk. It's more of a threat. He says, verse 13, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the, for the Jews 
from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther, you did a good job assimilating. Going unnoticed for many years, blending in. I'm glad you have enjoyed your protected bubble. But even in the comfort of the king's palace, as a queen, you are not safe. And so there's a few ways to take uh, what, what Mordecai is saying. Many commentators, even many Jewish rabbis say that Mordecai is basically threatening her. He's threatening to rat her out, basically. If you do not go to the king, I will tell them you're a Jew. Your end is like all of ours. Or he's saying in general, you will be found out. Maybe in a year, maybe in a few, but you will be found out somehow. And you will die like the rest of us. In short, Mordecai's answer to Esther is, you don't want to go to the king because you might die. Either way, you might die. And not doing anything, you will for sure die. What a great motivation. But we see two things here in the words of Mordecai. First, we see Mordecai's faith in God. He says, relief and deliverance will come. Mordecai is sure that it will come. If not through you, Esther, it will come from somewhere else. Mordecai is trusting God's promise to his people. Mordecai is trusting God's faithfulness to his people. Secondly, we see that Mordecai is beginning to put the pieces together. He's beginning to see God's providence at work. Verse 14, he says, And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I don't know, but who knows? Maybe you are in the kingdom exactly for this moment. And I'm sure Esther asked these questions. Maybe she wondered, God, why am I here? Why is this happening to me? Why was I taken away from everything I knew, from my people, to become a queen of the most powerful empire? I was a nobody raised to the position, to this position. Why? Why am I here? Mordecai is putting the pieces together. He's like, you are probably here for such a time as this. Esther, this is the moment. This is the time. So Esther has a choice to make. Continue to live in her bubble, enjoying the privileges of this world, or put everything on the line and seriously risk her life. Many other people of God had to 
face a similar choice. Moses grew up in the Pharaoh's palace. He also had to choose between the luxuries of Egypt or to identify himself with the people of God who were slaves and did not have a good future. Hebrews 11, verse 24, we read, By faith, Moses, when he was growing up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses chose to follow the invisible kingdom, the kingdom of God, rather than the riches and the treasures of Egypt. Many, many treasures of Egypt. A very comfortable life. Esther is faced with the same decision. Just by revealing who she is as a Jew, without even going to the king, she already faces a death sentence. Even more so if she goes to the king. Up to this point in the story, she went with the flow. She was the world's good girl. She was doing everything the empire expected of her. She was following the path of least resistance. And here, she is called to do something completely opposite. She is called to go against the grain of the empire, to stand up to the empire. And in verse 16, she makes a choice. We read, she tells Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Zutha and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. This is the first time in this story when Esther chooses to identify herself with the people of God. The camouflage begins to come off. Assimilation is coming to an end. And if we go back to the prophet Joel, we see a parallel again, a continuation of what we've already read, Joel 2.15. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. And Esther does exactly that. She blows the trumpet. She calls for a fast. She calls for the gathering of the people to come and ask God for mercy. I don't know what part of Mordecai's speech motivated her. Maybe she's doing this because 
she really believes that God has raised her up to, the, to this position for such a time as this. Or maybe she is doing this because of Mordecai's warnings and threats. Is this real faith? Or is this, I got to do this because I have no other choice? Maybe it's a mix of both. Maybe it's like being deathly sick and the only hope you have is going to a dangerous operation with only a 5% survival rate. And so she says, if I perish, I perish. Speaking of Old Testament stories like this, like the story of Esther, Paul writes to us in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, and he says, now these things happen to them as an example, for they are written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. The story of Esther serves us as an example. It's written down for our instruction, for us to learn these valuable lessons, and we could learn so much from this story. So much things that we can highlight and look at, but I want to highlight just two or three things. First, we see a warning. As Christians, we all face these kind of decisions every day in our life, maybe not to a degree that Esther did. A decision to identify with the world, to blend in, or to identify as God's people. To identify with the world is to go with the flow, is to choose the path of least resistance. And to identify with God and his word is often to stand against the grain of the world and often face consequences. But the reality is both decisions carry consequences. In the end, Mordecai's threat of death to Esther and to those who continue to blend in with the world is true and prophetic even today. By choosing to blend in with the world, to following the course of this world, you will not escape death. You will not escape destruction and punishment. If you choose to identify with God, you may experience uncomfort, even death from the world, but in the end, you will live because your life is hidden with Christ. And Christ will rule over all, and you will with him for eternity. On the contrary, if you choose to identify with the world, you will experience immediate relief. Today, it will be easy. It's easier to blend in. But at the end, you will receive 
eternal death and damnation. Because by rejecting the way of God, because rejecting his salvation through Jesus, you reject any future life. You choose death. So that's the warning for all of us to consider. But here's the good news. And the good news is this. Listen, none of us have obeyed God as we should. Like Esther, we have so often complied with the world. We chose the path of least resistance. We've all done that this week. We chose the way of the world rather than the way of God. That's what Esther did at one point. That's what Mordecai did. And instead of death, in response to our rejection of God and his way, God offers us life. And the words of Joel are true to us as they were true to Esther and the Jews. Joel 2.12, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Here's the good news to all of us. Because we have failed to love God and live according to his word. The Lord is merciful. He is gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding, to stead- and abounding in steadfast love. Whatever your past looks like, however much, however long you followed the path of the world, five or seven years like Esther, maybe your entire life, however much you have rejected the way of God, God is not far off. And here's how you can receive his grace and mercy tells that to his people then tells this to us today return to me with all of your heart with fasting with weeping and with moaning and with mourning this is a call to see the seriousness of your sin this is a call to see that living as the world Not identifying with God is a serious sin. Your compliance with the world, our worldliness, is a sin that we need to repent from church. He says, rend your hearts, not your clothes. This means that putting on sackcloths, ripping up the clothes, putting on ashes, 
It is not enough. It's not even necessary. Instead, rend your hearts, meaning rip up your hearts. Tear up your sinful hearts. Realize that the problem is here. Your heart leads you away from God. Your heart leads you to follow the path of this world. Realize that. And don't follow it. But return to the Lord. And and he will give you a new heart. And he will relent you from disaster. Look at this story. Not, spoiler alert, not only will Esther be saved, but God will use her as his instrument to bring salvation to his people. If Esther is not far off, if we take seriously what she has done in the life that she lived to this point, if if Esther is not far off, you are not far off from God. There is no sin that disqualifies you from coming to God other than the sin of rejecting his call and a failure to recognize your sin and a need for a savior. That's the only thing that disqualifies you from God. Your failure to come to him and receive mercy. Nothing else that you have done disqualifies you. Like Mordecai, like Esther, like the rest of the Jews in the empire, take your sin seriously. Mourn it before God. Confess it to God. And he will have mercy. He will have grace. He will show you his steadfast love. He will save you. And that is the good news. And lastly, We can't but notice the parallel between Esther and Christ in this text. Mordecai is basically asking Esther to be the mediator between the Jews and the king. He tells her, go and plead, go beg the king. Jesus is the mediator between God and us. It is our sin that separated from us from God to the point that we could not even enter into his throne room and plead our case. That was not even an option. But because of the work of Jesus, his death and resurrection, He mediates us to God. He pleads on our behalf and he covers our sin with his blood. He takes on our sin. He gives us the righteousness of Jesus so that we may come into the throne room of God boldly, forgiven, justified, righteous, accepted, Loved by God because of the mediating work of Jesus. 
1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Esther had to be convinced by Mordecai, threatened to go before the king. Jesus wasn't forced. He willingly went to be your mediator. For Esther, going before the king to mediate meant that she might die, and she didn't. For Jesus to be our mediator meant that he had to die. He knew what it was, and he did it willingly. And it is through the death of Jesus that God is able to display his grace, his mercy, and his steadfast love to us. The cross is the image of that. And so as we finish, church, after we pray, we're going to partake in communion. Communion is a physical sign of the mediating work of Jesus. It is because of the blood that he shed and his body that was crucified that we are able to have peace with God, that we are able to be accepted, loved, cherished, that we are able to have hope, that we are able to stand to this world, to go against the grains of this world, no matter what the consequences are. This right here is a promise that what comes ahead is good. That what comes ahead is glorious. And it is all because of the work that Christ has done on the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is a better mediator than Esther. That he willingly went to suffer in our place, to bring us to you. And Father, I pray that you would, Father, show us our sin, how we have failed you. And God, we mourn over our sin. We confess our sin. We lament, God. We are broken over our sin. Forgive us, O God. And Lord, at the same time, we celebrate. We celebrate the work of Jesus on our behalf. As your church, as your people, we celebrate the bright and hopeful future we have, God. And we thank you for that. So Lord, I pray that you would give us strength and conviction to stand against this world, against our flesh against the temptations that come our way. I pray that we would represent ourselves well before our families, before our communities, and before this world. I pray that we'd be a people that would repent, that would confess our sin every time we fail to represent you well. I pray this in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.